Y'all, welcome. My name is Simon Stokes. If I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you at some point. And this, y'all, this is the penultimate RUF of the year. This is second to the last. Um, Next week is the last one, so just put that on your radars. Um, Yeah, and I just want to say it's been a real pleasure walking through this book with y'all this semester, and I've loved it. Um, Man, so let's dive in. Uh, So... I don't know if, you, if you're a big movie watcher or if you love to watch movies, especially when they get closer to the end of the year. I think that there, they happen to be a lot of uh, kind of Oscar things and more, more I guess cerebral stuff. I don't, know. I don't know. I don't know where this movie would necessarily fall into it, but I saw The Martian right before Christmas. Is that, that's, is that like a thinking person's movie? I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? It's a space movie. I liked it. Uh, <laughs> if you don't know, it's about Matt Damon. He's uh, an astronaut. I don't know. <laughs> It's about Matt Damon. Uh, he's an astronaut who goes to Mars. He gets stranded there. And uh, for someone who gets stranded on another planet billions and billions and billions of miles away from the rest of humanity, like he's pretty chipper about the whole thing. Uh, it doesn't seem to really phase him that much. Uh, but it gets to a real low point when sort of things, I'm not going to ruin the movie for you, but when things sort of go south for him, which, you know, if you're going to watch the movie, things are going to go south for Matt Damon on Mars at some point. Uh, <laughs> and it's a real low point, and he he makes his way into this kind of lunar rover where he's trying to write out his last, what he thinks may be his last message to humanity, and he sends this message, and he says, in the message, tell my parents that I'm dying for something bigger than me. It's like, oh, this gut-wrenching moment. And as you're watching, you're kind of thinking, okay, how how is a movie that is essentially Tom Hanks' Castaway remade for Mars about this guy who's kind of solo science in his way um, through the Red Planet, how does that become a blockbuster? Like, how does that become something that's compelling, makes a ton and ton of money for people? I think it's this. It's trying to say something about humanity. That in telling the story of this one man, there's something being said that touches on all of our stories. That, yeah, there's setbacks, there's hardships, there's pitfalls in the world. But what the Martian is saying is that people if they're just smart enough and hardworking enough and diligent enough and can, can come together and they can kind of conquer those setbacks. And I think there's something to that. I don't agree with the whole premise, but there's something there. I say that because of this, that wherever you are coming from tonight, that everyone lives in a story larger than yourself, that everyone has kind of a worldview, and as the name suggests, it's a way or a view of looking at the world. And that one of the things that every worldview has to do is it has to make sense of hardship. It has to make sense of setbacks or pitfalls or suffering in life. That those are things that are just so prevalent that any story or any worldview that we might have just has to comprehend them. Otherwise, it's incomprehensible to us. As we've gone through the book of Hebrews this semester, the author has been inviting us into the story of the Bible and the way that it leads up to Jesus. And he's saying, hey, try this on. Try it on. See if this doesn't make sense of your world and who you are. And the good things, the bad things, the dignity, the depravity. And at this point in Hebrews 12, he's really gotten to the crux of what he's writing about. Because he's not really interested in writing a theology letter. Rather, he's trying to help the people that he originally wrote this to, the Hebrews, understand something. And it says, why are they being persecuted for their faith? Why would God let this happen to them? Have you ever been there or felt something like that? Remember, this is written to people who were born Jewish, grew up in a synagogue, grew up in the Jewish faith, and then came to understand that the whole Old Testament is pointing forwards towards Jesus. And so they become Christians, but now they're being persecuted for their Christian faith. And they're saying to themselves, you know, 
I'm not thinking of stopping believing in God. I'm just going to return to living as a Jewish person because I don't want to be persecuted anymore. And to some of us, that can sound totally foreign. Most, if you're here at a Christian meeting, are probably not considering converting to Judaism. But I think that can really touch on a temptation for us, which can be something like, you know, I'm not thinking of stopping believing in God. I'm just going to subtly blend into living like everyone else. And I'll nod my head at different viewpoints or laugh at other jokes that I know I probably shouldn't because I don't want to risk the social capital to disagree. So yeah, I'll keep my head down. I'll go with the flow. I'll kind of camouflage myself so I don't offend. But the whole point of the book of Hebrews is this long argument that spiritually speaking, that can be really dangerous. That even though persecution comes, setbacks or pitfalls come because of our faith, that we need to persevere. We need to endure in that, even when it feels really hard. So tonight, I want to talk about just one thing. One thing here, and I think it's pretty clear from the text. I want to talk about the way of endurance. What does it look like for people to endure? How is that going to look in our life here at UMC, or maybe even for the future? So I want to dive in that tonight. What is, what is the way of endurance for us? Y'all, as you come to college, you probably know that human beings are constantly in a state of change. You're in a state of flux. College is a major time of transition and change for y'all. And central to the issue of change is not just what you do, but what don't you do, especially in your Christian faith. Think about this. The picture that's been given us in Hebrews is running this kind of endurance marathon. And when you're training for something, you're choosing to do one thing over another thing. You choose to get up early and work out instead of sleep. You choose to eat a salad rather than a dessert. Uh, You choose to endure the rigor of hardship for some greater goal, which you don't feel like doing, but you kind of have to will yourself to do. If you've ever been on a sports team, you probably know that feeling. The image the writer has given us here is this long-distance endurance race. that can feel grueling, but ultimately leads to this glorious conclusion. And in many ways, this is a race that changes us, that transforms us as we run. In many ways, you learn who you are, what your identity as a Christian is, by, by doing this. Think about this. Some of y'all are thinking about marriage one day, and you'll walk down the aisle, and you'll become either a husband or a wife, and the moment that you say, I do, you'll be putting on a new identity for yourself. And when you get married, you don't necessarily know the fullness and all the implications of what that identity is. I mean, I know that when I said, I do, to Katie, I mean, I'd, I'd known other husbands, I'd met other husbands, I'd never been a husband, though. And the whole of our married life together is kind of working out what our vows are to each other as husband and wife. That this is a central core part of our identity. And yet, like, we jumped into this thing not necessarily knowing all the implications for it. Parenting is like this too, isn't it? Um, a lot of y'all I don't think are parents, but I am, so I'm going to use this. But I was talking to a friend of mine recently, and he told me about this book that he was reading on parenting. And the name of it kind of caught my ear because it felt so true to the experience. Uh, but it, the name of the book was All Joy and No Fun, and, which is true. Because when you become a parent, you give up a lot of really fun things. You give up fun trips. Your clothing budget takes a dive bomb. Uh, it wrecks your body. It wrecks your sleep. Uh, disciplining y'all, a toddler for climbing on the oven, is not fun. It's like the least fun thing to do. Saving up, and this kills me to say this, but saving up to buy a minivan instead of taking a trip to Europe with your wife is not fun. Waking up at 6.30 a.m. every Saturday morning for the next decade, that's not fun. That's not fun. But holding your daughter in your hands for the first time and instantly falling in love with this little person that's going to wreck your life, 
and totally transform you. Y'all, that's joy. Y'all, um, holding her in her arms and singing to her every night before she goes to bed, and knowing that when you wake up in the morning and she's going to sit bolt right up in her bed when you go get her and just say, da-da. Like, that's joy. And that transforms you. And when I became a dad, I had no idea all the implications that go into that. But it's awesome. But it changes you. I gave up a lot of fun to become a father. But it's nothing compared to the joy that I've received. And that's, what, that's a lot of what the Christian life feels like too. Because everyone is in a process of change and becoming. That's college. Every semester is different. Ideally, they're leading somewhere, right? Gainful employment. Um, this is what the Christian life is. Y'all, the old, old biblical metaphor of what God is doing with people as they run this race of faith is he's changing them by refining them. He's refining us. And the picture that God's word gives us is it's like we enter a crucible. What's a crucible? Think of it as like this bowl where you take uh, metal, usually precious metal, and you heat it up until it's white hot liquid. And then when what floats the top of that liquid is all the impurities, and you skim it off. Skim off all those impurities off the top. So you heat and skim, heat and skim, heat and skim, until you get this pure, perfect gold or silver metal. And that's the picture of what God is doing with his people as we run. That God is using the race of faith, of enduring, and the hardship that comes with it to refine his people. Because, y'all, the witness of God's people for millennia is that on the surface, things might seem like they're not turning out well. Like, we are in the crucible. This is hard. This is difficult. You get sick, or you can't find a job, or you're in a culture where there's sort of low-level hostility towards Christian belief. And God doesn't just work in spite of those things to refine someone. But the witness of his people and of his word is that he works through those things. Because the witness of God's people is that God took something on the front end in my life that looks like a disaster. Like there is a dumpster over here and it is on fire and that is synonymous with me, right? And he took it and he used it in my life in such a way that I was blessed through the hardship and the difficulty. Would I ever want to go through it again? No, never. Would I wish that on anyone else? No, never. But to look back and look further on down the road and be able to say, I thought that what I was entering was this lost cause. I thought that it was hopeless. I thought that things were over. But that was the best thing that could have happened to me. That God used this thing that was difficult. That he used this thing where it felt like I was being heated up and refined and just things were being taken out of my life. And it actually made me more like him. It made me more like his son. And that was so difficult and yet so beautiful. Is that the power of positive thinking? No. It is becoming like Jesus through endurance. Martin Luther, who knew a little bit about this kind of thing, he once wrote that this life, therefore, is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness. Not health, but healing. Not being, but becoming. Not rest, but exercise. Do you hear that process that he's going through? We are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing toward it. The process is not yet finished, but it's going on. This is not the end, but it is the road. All does not yet gleam in glory, but all is being purified. Y'all, the Christian life, running this race, enduring these things, this is about being refined and purified, of healing becoming health, right? Right? 
That's why RUF is a place for people to be in process. Well, it's okay for some of y'all to be depressed and not know where that's going to go. That's why it's okay for some of y'all to have addictions here and for us to walk with you through that. That's why it's okay for us to struggle and wrestle and for this to be a place where you can kind of take off kind of a perfect public persona and be messy with people and be a sinner. Because that's really the reality of what the Christian life is. is I'm leaving sin behind and I'm entering this crucible. I'm, I'm being refined with these people alongside of me. You know, everyone is going to experience hardships in life. Setbacks, pitfalls, times that feel like failure or difficulty. And you will wonder, how is this experience part of God's plan for my life? If He's good and He's in control, how is this my plan A? You're going to feel that. You're going to wonder that when you're in the crucible. What does the writer say to that question? Look at verses 7 through 8 here. It is for discipline you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. This is, again, this is God looking at us through the sonship of Jesus. He's not, he knows that you're men and women. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Y'all, faith in Jesus is receiving everything that Jesus has. All of God's welcome, his joy, his peace. But that doesn't just include Jesus' status, but that includes his process as well. That Jesus, in his earthly life, he was poor. That he endured hostility from sinners. And he carried a cross. And so shall we. That if Jesus was disciplined as a son, so shall we. That if Jesus went without and had setbacks and suffering and hardships, so shall we. You know, don't think of discipline here as in something you've done wrong. Think of it as though you're training for something very, very, very difficult. That again, Christian life is like this long distance endurance race. It's not just behind closed doors where it's like us saying our prayers and us singing our songs and us kind of being together and then just kind of uh, evaporating into the culture of the campus at large. But being a Christian is being in a public spectacle on display in front of the world. It's like running this race in front, in front of everyone. That This is why it's so hard, because we're doing it, and we're doing it publicly. Like Jesus had a public ministry, because what he has is ours. If he carries a cross, we carry a cross. And what's the warning here? Did you pick up on that? What's the warning here? Is, is it don't fall into this huge moral gray area? Don't stop having your quiet time, as important as that is? No, what's the warning? Look at verse 3. Do not grow weary or faint-hearted. Don't, don't grow weary or faint-hearted. That this is a long-distance thing. And that we hit setbacks and think to ourselves, you know, I thought she was the one, but she broke up with me. Or I know that everyone dies. And I know that, you know, they were old. But I never thought the experience of watching it happen to someone I cared about like this would be this painful. I thought that being a Christian would be like this feeling of peace and joy and love. I don't feel that right now. What's going on? What's the answer the writer gives here for this? That we're being refined. And what's the solution to that? Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Think about Jesus and what his life was like and know that that's yours. And that if you're entering into this thing and your life looks or feels like Jesus' must have looked or felt like, then maybe you're doing something right. I mean, on the night that he's betrayed, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, no servant is greater than their master. 
That if the master is betrayed and he's known as the man of sorrows, then why wouldn't the servants be too? If the son experienced this, then why won't the rest of God's children experience too? That to suffer and become more like Jesus with that experience of suffering is not mean, doesn't necessarily mean you're doing something wrong. It may just be a mark of God being part of God's people. You know, think about this. Have you ever prayed that God would make you wise? Have you ever prayed that? Like, how would God make us wise if he doesn't show us first how foolish it is for us to trust ourselves so that we would trust his wisdom? Have you ever prayed that you would be spiritually strong? Don't you have to work out your spiritual muscles before you get strong, right? How do you do that except through enduring and running? Have you ever prayed, God, help me to be someone that's able to forgive other people? How do you forgive others unless... You know, people are sinning against you. You know, that's not to justify their sin. Some has been sinned against deeply. But it's to say that God can teach us and refine good things in our lives through bad things. And that's part of the power of redemption, right? In Acts chapter 5, the apostles, they're preaching, they're teaching in the synagogues, they're preaching and teaching in the temple. They, the authorities don't like it. And so this, the apostles are beaten for testifying to Jesus what does it say that they left and took away with that, from that experience? It says they went home rejoicing that they were worthy to suffer dishonor for Jesus. Does it say that that was fun? No. Does it say that it was right for them to be beaten? No. Does they rejoice? Yes. Because they were becoming like Jesus. Y'all, think about how this helps people like us. Think about how this helps people like us. For some of you, you really wrestle with the issue of like, how do I really know if I'm a Christian or not? How do I know? Because it's not like I got a medal or a certificate of something that says saved, and I get to put that over my bed. And we can really wrestle with this over things that we feel guilty. Um, search histories on our computers, or when you sit down with a group of people, and you just instantly feel superior to them. But all of us feel that way at some time. And especially as you get older and you learn more about yourself, your awareness of your sin as it shrink, it actually grows. Like you, you know more of your own stuff. How does this help people like us? That as you wrestle with this sin, as you wrestle with things and it hurts you or it hurts people you love or you, and you lose things over it, it refines you. That God takes this process and he actually refines you. So in the end, you look and you say, I really learned that God loved me when I showed myself unlovable. And all those other things that I loved failed me. His love was still there. Seeing the consequences of sin in our lives, that's not fun, is it? But seeing the consequence of that sin and believing the gospel that God loves me in spite of my sin, what is that? That's assurance. That's God actually working in your life. And you're able to look back and say, you know, God loves me because... I know that God loves me because He's worked in my life in spite of who I am. You know, that's worth its weight in gold. Because here's why this passage should really give you incredible hope and not leave you feeling like, all right, now I've got to go out and like work harder. I'm already at a time in my life in, t- in finals where this is really difficult. How do I do this? This is what I want you all to take away. That if God can take the worst thing ever that happened in history, that the second person, the Trinity, the Son, would leave heaven, and he would become a person, and he would grow up as a peasant, And he would love his neighbor perfectly. And wherever he went, he would heal people. 
And he would make people whole. And he could teach like no one else taught. And he could say things that were incredible. And no one could look at him and say, you learned this from so and so. He has no teacher. Like if that kind of person could go through a sham trial and be crucified and hung on a cross and God would take that and he would turn it around to take away sin and darkness and heal the world, then why can't he take our suffering and our heartaches and our sadness and use that to bring out really good things in the world? Does it make the times when people sin against us Or does it make the times when we sin against other people? Does it make them okay? No. But it means that all things must work to the good of those whom God loves. That your stuff, the bad things that happen in your life are not wasted, but it's actually God refining you, purifying you. Y'all, there's so much hope. There's so much joy in the Christian life. There's also dying to sin. And living to Christ, enduring hostility from the world. That this is one of the marks of being God's child. And everyone for forever has felt this. Y'all, the Christian life is a process of transformation. It's entering into this crucible and being refined. It's this public spectacle where you're changed in front of people. And along the way, you learn who Jesus is and who you are. And how great the gospel is. Because you feel it in your bones. You're changed by it. And if it feels hard, if it feels like an endurance race, good. That's that's what everyone has felt. It means you're actually in it. That's the way it's supposed to be. Y'all, I'll end with this. Um, I saw 30 for 30 recently on Netflix. It was really good. And it was about the, uh, you probably, this has happened before a lot of y'all were born, but the Holyfield-Tyson fight in the, like, the 90s. Uh, Mike Tyson was like the biggest, baddest dude like ever in boxing. He was really, really mean. People were really like legitimately afraid of him. And Evander Holyfield, he was a boxer, a heavyweight boxer, and he was tough. But he was a really like just known as a really nice guy. And he was a good boxer, but like he and Tyson were going to fight, and no one thought that Holyfield was going to win this match. Like nobody thought that he had a chance because Tyson was just so mean. And they pub the fight for like a year. They're trained for a year. There's all this back and forth. And Tyson's just way out of line. And, and the night of the fight comes. And Holyfield just goes in there and gives Tyson his all. And Tyson is on the ropes. And he's just getting beat. Like left and right, left and right. And finally he comes in and he wraps up with Holyfield. And Holyfield starts to push him away. And Tyson comes in and he bites his ear. And bites like the top of his earlobe off and spits it on the floor of the the ring. And it's totally insane. Totally insane. And they interview in this 30... Yeah, it absolutely is. They interview in this 30 for 30. That Holyfield is reflecting back on it. And he said, I wanted to bite him back so bad. I was so mad. But Holyfield is an evangelical Christian. And so, that's right. <laughs> and so, it doesn't mean he doesn't want to bite him. Because he's, I mean, he's been training. He's, he's a physical, strong man. You're in a ring with a guy and you're, like, f- literally fighting him. So you're, like, adrenaline and t- testosterone are, like, through the roof. But he said, my trainer stood in the corner and said, don't do it, Evanda. Keep your mind on the Lord. Keep your mind on the Lord. And he's like, I want to do it real bad, but I didn't. <laughs> and he, he actually won the fight against Tyson. He beat him, like fair and square. 
Y'all, fighting against sin, y'all, it can feel like a street fight. It will feel dirty at times. But to win, you've got to keep your mind on the Lord. You've got to consider the one who endured such hostility from sinners. You've got to think on the gospel and know that if God can take the cross and transform it for good, He can take this stuff in my life and transform it. Like, is it fun to get hit? Is it fun to get knocked down? Is it fun to train? No, like, no athlete says, you know, I just love soaking in a tub of ice. Like, nobody says that. But every athlete loves the pleasure of crossing the finish line, looking at the final score, and winning and the joy and acclamation that come with that. Look at what you did. This is incredible. Did you see that? Of course you did. You were the one that did it, right? Look, all of us long to receive from someone who knows our hard work and our struggles and our perseverance, that look in the eye of saying, I know how hard you worked. I'm so proud of you. I see this. I know the struggle. I know the fight. Y'all, one day, maybe your deceased grandma is going to say that to you. And that would make some of us ball like a baby. But think about this. That if you're a Christian, one of the very face of God is going to look you in the eye and say, I saw that. I saw the way you laid yourself out for those people. I saw the way you took that hit and you were honest when it was difficult and that day in and day out you ran. And you were faithful. And you cared for them. And God is going to look you in the eye and He's going to say, Well done, good and faithful servant. That that is the thing we hope for. That is the thing all of us, I think, long for. It's not just for anyone to look you in the face and say, I'm proud of you. But for God Himself to do that. You know, you will weep like a tiny baby. And God Himself will wipe away your tears. That that is our hope and that is the hope of the gospel. That that is what we're going to talk more about next week. Of what is heaven like? What is the glory like? What is the end of this race of faith? That's my invitation to you. Not just for next week, but for forever. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you take the worst things of our life. You take the pain and the heartache and the suffering and the tears. Lord, and you redeem those things. Lord, none of that is wasted. All of that, God, is used by you to refine us. Lord, some of us feel like we're in a crucible right now. That it is hot and we feel closed in and that it is hard. Lord, you know what that's like. Jesus, you experienced that yourself. Jesus, you sympathize with us. Help us to know your sympathy. Help us to know your strength and your power. Help us to persevere and run the race of faith. Lord, let us know your love. Let us know your faith. Let us know your passion for your people. God, help us to endure. God, and bring us through the crucible into the joy and the light and the laughter of your kingdom. In your name we pray. Amen.